Hello and welcome to Explore, the podcast where we talk with business leaders about their careers and their industry. Today, I'm joined by David Poulara. He is currently a chief marketing officer. He has worked in very famous companies such as Starbucks, Pizza Hut, Google, and Coca-Cola. He is also a teacher at York University. And on top of all of that, David has recently written a book which is available on Amazon as well. I will put a link in the show notes. I think in short, we should think about David as a marketing expert for the show. The 45 minute discussion I've had with David was super insightful and I probably have learned more than during my business school years. Don't forget to follow me on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. I also have an Instagram account. I will put everything in the show notes. Oh, and I forgot to mention, this episode is available in the video now. So if you're on Spotify, you might see me on the screen. So I hope you enjoyed that part as well. David, first of all, massive thank you for taking the time to meet with me today. And if you don't mind sharing a bit about yourself, who you are, where you live, and what you currently do. Uh, wonderful. Hugo, thanks so much for having me uh, on the podcast. Um, I you know, love having these types of conversations. I could talk about marketing all day long. So uh, my name is David Palera. I live uh, just north of Toronto, Canada. I uh, lived in Canada all my life but have uh, European citizenship as well. So I hope to uh, do some traveling at some point. Um, I, as you mentioned in, in the introduction, you know, I'm a marketer, a career marketer. I love marketing. I've had the pleasure and privilege of working for some, uh, some well-known brands, uh, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, uh, Pizza Hut, Google. Uh, but I've also worked at a number of different startups and, and I love the, the difference between, you know, working at an organization that, uh, you know, small and scrappy and, and, you know, being able to, to, to move quickly. And then the really larger organizations where you might have more resourcing and you might have more, um, uh, processes in place, uh, a lot of systems that help you learn. Um, so the difference between the two, I, I've just been lucky to be able to experience both in my career. Lovely. And that actually leads to the first topic of today, which is how working at a U.S large US corporation actually can influence how you think about marketing. So what would you say in your experience that, you know, Starbucks, Pizza Hut, Coca-Cola, even Google, like how does, did that shape your experience and your understanding of marketing as a topic? Well, I think, you know, I love to learn and I love to pick up new tools for my toolkit. And so every time I join a company, one of the things that I think of right away is, you know, what could I learn from this organization? And when I joined Starbucks, you know, it, I love coffee. <laughs> I love the Starbucks as a brand. And so, but when I joined Starbucks, what I really realized is that Starbucks did not do mass media, right? Like Starbucks, when they do marketing, they're talking about community-based marketing, really local marketing around their stores. And yes, they have national initiatives, of course. And today their loyalty program is incredibly strong. Uh, it wasn't, you know, when I worked there, the loyalty program didn't exist. But when you went to Starbucks, you learned a lot about how to market at a local level and really uh, commute, how to build a community that's uh, passionate about what you do um, and how to really stand for something. You know, Starbucks really did stand for treating uh, their their uh, employees, which, which Starbucks calls partners, better, um, sourcing really great products and treating the coffee farmers fairly. Um, sustainability was a big deal. So there was all of these great things that really helped build a really passionate brand. And you really learned that how by building a community of people who are passionate about what you do, that's a really great way of building a brand. 
And then I moved on to Pizza Hut. And there were two reasons I left Starbucks, a good reason and a bad reason. The bad reason was money, because I never think you should change a job just for money. But I just finished my MBA and MBAs are expensive. And uh, the the the, incre- the salary increase I got from uh, moving from Starbucks to Yum was was enough to pay for my MBA. So that was uh, that was the bad reason. But there was a very good reason, a much better reason than money that I left. And that was because I was a senior marketer. I was already reporting to the vice president. I had CMO or general management aspirations. And I knew that one day I was going to be in a room being interviewed for a big CMO job. And I'd get laughed out of that room because I had never done mass media. And I knew that Pizza Hut would give me the opportunity to do a television ad and do a a fully integrated campaign and work with PR and work with digital. All the things that really uh, I wasn't going to be able to do at Starbucks because that's not how Starbucks did marketing. Then I went to Coca-Cola. People ask me, well, why did you leave Pizza Hut to go to Coca-Cola? I said, well, because I'm a marketer and it's Coca-Cola. I mean, they invented a lot of what we do in marketing today. Coca-Cola is credited as being the first one to use coupons right? So um, there was a ton you can learn from Coke about how do you build a global brand? How do you build a brand that's relevant in uh, multiple languages and with multiple nationalities and in different countries and, you know, available uh, in all countries in the world except for two, right? So you don't get much more global than that. And then after Coke, I moved on to Google and Google, working at Google is like getting a, a digital MBA, you know, just understanding what digital actually allows you to do once you know well was just an incredible learning experience. So for each of my different experiences, it was really about what tools can I add to the toolkit so that when I approach a problem or when I go into a new organization, I can say, all right, well, let's assess the situation, what actually needs to be done, and then what tools do I have to be able to solve it, right? And and that's kind of what I've learned from working at these other organizations. The other thing I will add is that um, those large Fortune 500 global organizations that often have uh, uh, central operations in the U.S., uh, learning how to collaborate cross-border. Do you know sometimes someone in the world is doing something really great and you could just pick it up and use it? Sometimes you need to make a little minor tweak. And then sometimes you're like, this is not relevant to our market. We have to do our own thing. I mean, one example of that was when I worked at Coca-Cola, the energy brand was focusing on NASCAR. Well, in the U.S., NASCAR is huge, but in Canada, it doesn't really have any presence at all. So a NASCAR promotion really wasn't going to play very well in Canada. So for that particular time, I had to do something completely different. Yeah, that's really interesting because I believe NASCAR is not even a thing in Europe. I don't even know if we do have NASCAR. So I agree with you. It's, uh, it's interesting how cultures shape the way brands are created and the type of content that you can provide to an audience is completely different from one place to another. Um, but uh, David, one thing you keep mentioning as you talk through your career is the word brand. And I don't think the word brand is even defined properly for everyone. So I would want to ask you if you could define that word and also tell me a bit more about what is the power and the value of a brand. That's a great question. I have a slide in the class I teach that defines brand. And, and there's lots of different definitions of what a brand actually is. Uh, my favorite definition comes from Mutar Kent who was the former uh, chairman and CEO of the Coca-Cola company. And he said, um, a brand is a promise. A great brand is a promise kept. And for me, that is the most simple, but also most accurate definition of what a brand is, right? A brand is a a mental shortcut. You know, when I go into the grocery store and I need to pick up laundry detergent, 
I don't really want to spend a whole lot of my mental bandwidth thinking about laundry detergent. So I look for the orange box on, uh, box on the shelf or the orange bottle. And because I know that Tide is the brand I trust, Tide uh, means clean clothes, right? It's a mental shortcut. So it takes a lot of time to build that brand to in order to kind of make sure that that's the brand I'm thinking of when I think about clean clothes. But once you have it, I mean, you you can essentially help. It's not It's not infallible, but you can help lock people in so that they're not even considering other options, right? Um, the concept of loyalty, you know, there's a lot of debate these days about uh, whether people are actually brand loyal. And for me, brand loyalty doesn't mean you have to be exclusively loyal to one brand. I'm very loyal to Starbucks, right? That doesn't mean I never drink any other brand of coffee. Of course I do. I drink so much coffee, I'd, just, I'd go bankrupt if all I had was Starbucks. But the real question is this. If there's a Starbucks on the right side of the street and another coffee shop on the left side of the street, will you turn right more often than you turn left, given that all other things being equal? To me, that's, that's brand loyalty. That's what you want to aspire for. So the other thing about brand is that brand is all about consistency. You need to know what you expect. One of the great things about Starbucks is that, theoretically, no matter what location I go into, that pumpkin spice latte that I order is going to taste the same in all locations. And when it doesn't taste the same, that's a problem. That's an inconsistency that, that you want to avoid for the brand at all costs. So how do you make this promise that you deliver consistently over time? That's how you build a great brand. And it's not, you know, marketing. Some people, some marketers, uh, non-marketers in particular, they like to think of uh, marketing as advertising. And it's not. Advertising is such a tiny little portion of what marketing actually is. Marketing, big M, well, I like to call it big M marketing. That's running the business. That's really understanding all of the different levers that exist to help you drive the business forward. And brand is far more than what your advertising is, right? It's far more than what your packaging is. It's every touch point that a consumer has with your product or service impacts the brand. When you're in human resources, you need to be thinking about the brand. When you're in sales, you need to be thinking about the brand. It's not just marketing's job to own the brand. Everybody contributes to the brand experience. Uh, marketing is just usually the one uh, beating the drum and, and reminding everybody how important it is. Yeah. Now, definitely, I like how you think about brand also from an internal perspective. Of course, it's about the image you send of your company and your products to people on the street, but it's also about how you shape your culture and how people deliver on that culture. You mentioned sales, you mentioned human resources as well. And, you know, you've got to be consistent all across the place from internally and externally in order to have a brand that's trusted by everyone. Um, it would be weird if you have a sales guy that have a completely different culture and image than the brand he's working for, because then kind of distract that uh, brand that was built before. Uh, but it's really interesting. I like how you think about it. And also like the fact that brands are not perceived the same by everyone. Because for me, for example, you mentioned Starbucks. I don't drink Starbucks. I don't even really like Starbucks for some reason. I don't, I don't even know why. Maybe I had a bad experience in the past. Maybe I'm not uh, receiving the information properly. But it's, it's so funny that it's perceived so differently by people and some people enjoy it so much and some people hate it completely. Like, actually on that, do you have any experience of, you know, working for such large company and such large brand that, you know, you're a bit afraid of 
am I going to say I work for that company because they might react in two different ways, right? 1000%. I learned, I used to do some traveling when I was at Starbucks. And what I learned very quickly is that, you know, when you have casual conversation with the person next to you on a flight, I learned very quickly never to mention where I work at the beginning of a flight. Because what would inevitably happen is that either the person loved Starbucks and I would spend the next few hours hearing about their favorite drink and their favorite store and their favorite barista. And it was all great, but, you know, they would be love Starbucks or they hated Starbucks. And I would spend the next few hours talking about how it's overpriced and it's burnt coffee and it, uh, you know, it's, it's cookie cutter stores. So very, very polarizing, right? Uh, Coca-Cola. There are people who love Coke products and there are people who hate that, that unhealthy sugar water, right? Very polarizing. But that's another thing I teach my classes, right? All great brands are polarizing. I actually put up a slide uh, of uh, Gene Simmons from the band Kiss. And uh, he had a great quote that I use. And he said, uh, people either love Kiss or they hate us with all their guts. And that's the way we like it. Because you will not find a great brand that everybody loves. I challenge you. You will not find a single brand that is either universally loved or universally hated. Great brands understand their consumers. They pick their audience. They target their audience. And they worry about making that audience happy. They don't worry about making everybody happy. Because trying to make everybody happy is the fastest way to mediocrity. Uh, it's probably the fastest way to have no one liking you as well. Um, I mean, at, at least no one loving you. If you're just like a regular brand, no one really knows who you are. They don't really care about you so much. And that's just... Why, why would you pick a brand that you just like when you can pick a brand that you love? Yeah. And you always have so many options. Like, you know, if you want to Coke, for example, well, you have Pepsi, you have Coca-Cola, but you also have so many different brands that are doing similar type of things. So like... Definitely what influences you is not the taste, even though some people say it's a taste, I believe it's more the brand and the perception of the taste than anything else. But yeah, switching up on another topic, you just mentioned about your teaching just before you said like you, of course, teach some people about marketing and you're really passionate about the topic, which is uh, super interesting when, when we talk with you. Um, one of the things I was wondering is like, how does teaching influence your perspective of marketing? Because I feel like one of the things in life is that the more you are able to teach other people on how to do something, the better you understand it yourself. Sometimes you just realize you understand something really great and all the details about this thing when you just teach it to someone else or explain it to someone else. So like, how did it kind of shape your perspective of marketing? Well, I think the first thing is that you, you nailed it right away. I think that in order to be able to teach something, you need to understand it really well in order to teach it well. And so the reverse is also true, where if you know you need to teach something, you dive in and make sure you understand it really well. So I, I teach uh, retail marketing strategies uh, for the Schulich School of Business at York University. And when you teach retail, I mean, I update my class every term, right? I update my course material at the beginning of every term because retail changes so frequently. It's changing every day that so a, the, the class that I taught Five years ago, when I first started teaching in 2017, the course is radically different from that today because so much has changed since 2017, right? So um, for me, it is about making sure that you can stay current, 
making sure that you understand the material well enough to be able to explain it to somebody who's hearing it for the first time. Um, I love to learn. And so immersing myself in a learning environment where my colleagues are doing interesting research and getting to kind of share that research and, and, and read that research and speak with these colleagues and have interesting debates. Uh, for me, I love it. I've always been a, a geek that loves school. I always love to be in the classroom and I love to learn and I love to try to master new things. And there's not an end point. Like, you know, when you love learning, you don't just get to a point where you're like, all right, I'm done. Like you introduced me as a marketing expert. I don't consider myself that. I don't think that you can have some expertise in marketing, but you're never done. Marketing's changing all the time. People are doing interesting new things. A new company comes out and starts doing marketing in an interesting way. And you kind of look at that and observe what works and add that to your, your, your mental toolkit. You're never done. If you love learning, you're never done. And so that's really what I love about being in a university environment. Yeah, that's really interesting. I also believe that because of all these moving to di digital more and more, and especially with marketing, being close to students and people that are that were born actually with those tools must help you as well to understand a bit more, even though I believe your experience at Google teach you a lot, but um, I think that's also helped. I mean, when you look at, you know, I have a class, uh, this term I'm teaching a class of 46 undergraduate students. So these students would be between 19 and 21. Um, they grew up digital, right? They, they know digital, uh, you know, they're they're more native to digital tools and tactics far more than I'll ever be, and and so they're telling me about retailers that maybe I haven't heard of before, right? Maybe they're not giant global retailers that everybody hear about, but I get to learn about all of these, um, you know, retailers from different countries that are bringing new ideas to the scene, and I get to hear about brands that you know as a as 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 me <laughs> I might not ever know of. But I have people in my class saying, oh, this brand is amazing. And that leads me to go and learn about that brand. And that's probably what I love most about, about uh, teaching. You know, it's the students asking questions that sometimes get you to think about things that you thought you knew and get you to think about them in a different way. Yeah. And, and to that extent, do you see some emerging trends or technologies or tactics of marketing that students are a bit more aware of because they are younger that you would want to apply as well in your kind of current role um is that something you see a, a trend or like how does that evolve or does marketing evolve as, as, a, as a concept overall you know i i think it's really funny so first of all it's very difficult uh, because people are so different it's very difficult to predict what everybody's going to do because people are going to react, you know, differently. Um, what I would say there's a few there's a few constants that I think we can all agree on. Um, technology is becoming more and more ingrained into what we do. Um, it's becoming easier to not have to leave your house. Like from a thinking from a retail perspective, for example, our dishwasher broke down this week. We found we needed a new dishwasher. And so what happened is my wife came into my office and we spent about five minutes online uh, Googling a dishwasher. And then we found one that we liked at Costco and it's being delivered on Saturday. And it took total shopping experience of less than 10 minutes and I didn't have to leave my house. When we do grocery shopping in my house, we go three times a week and we use click and collect. So I think that technology is changing the way we shop in the sense that it's making it easier to find options. 
It's making it much more convenient. Uh, when you think about product selection, I mean, I can find almost anything online and have it sent to my house in relatively short order. Um, so what's left? I think what's left is what some of the things that perhaps people are craving most, which is experience, right? Because if we all were to shut ourselves in and only do our shopping uh, from our phones and have everything delivered to our house, I think there's an element of human connection that's missing. There are some people who actually enjoy shopping. And so what's the reason that you give them to get out of the house and to look around, you know, uh, what is it in your store? Is it the great service? Is it the great sensory stuff that you have in your stores that I can not just look, but also touch and smell and hear and feel, you know, um, what are you doing as a, as a retailer, for example, to make it an experience for me to come to your store for make me to want to come to your store as opposed to a chore that I have to, you know, check off as complete. I focus my answer more on a retail perspective, but I think for, again, uh, zooming out from a marketing perspective, technology is going to be a, a huge play and understanding um, how things like AI, I mean, I, could we even do a podcast these days without mentioning AI at least once? Um, AI is going to have an impact. I don't think that that performance marketing is going to be really that useful in the next five to 10 years, because I think that the computers will just optimize it for you. We will eventually get to a point where you can just enter in what your goal is. And if you trust the system enough, the system will probably optimize better than, than we ever possibly could hope to do with any sort of human intervention. So, you know, that's going to change the way we think about things. Um, how do you build a brand when it's really, really easy to start a company these days? Um, it's never been easier to start a company, right? You can just, I can go right now onto Shopify and I can, you know, Go and use some AI tools to think of a company name and to think of uh, a logo and to, um, you know, design a couple of t-shirts and then have a company print the t-shirts and drop ship them and open up a Shopify store. I mean, I could spend the rest of the afternoon and just have a company by the end of the day. It's never been easier to start a company. That's actually really funny because I believe, I believe kind of the opposite is also true because it's so easy to start a company that you get lost in all of these brands and companies. And the competition yeah, exactly gets tougher. That's exactly what I'm saying. My point is it's never been easier to start a company and it's never been harder to stand out, right? So that, that's exactly my point. So it's, it's the, how, what are you doing to stand out? That's what's going to change marketing. And I think that uh, how you're going to stand out is a level of personalization that how, how do you make sure that you're meeting my unique needs? How do you know me well enough to know what I need? Ideally, before I know I need it, and then suggest solve the problems that I didn't know that I had yet. How do you make sure that you your operations are running smoothly so that when I go and buy a product, you actually have it? How is the logistics infrastructure in place so that it gets delivered to my house seamlessly and I don't have to worry about you know stuff getting lost in the mail, right? So and and how do you make people aware of you in the first place? And the, there will never be better marketing than word of mouth marketing. So how do you build an experience that's so incredible that the people who shop there tell everybody they know about it? Because that's really how you start building that that community, those those passionate brand advocates. Yeah, no, that's that's um I believe word of mouth is probably the most powerful that we ever have and we will ever have because like, you know, that's one of the things marketing classes taught me as well is the difference between how you think about a product before, during and after. 
and I believe more and more, I mean, when I buy something, I always like to read the reviews before and think about it. And therefore, like, if you don't deliver a good experience, then it's probably never going to work because a lot of people are like me and they, they like reading reviews and they're not even going to try the product if the reviews are bad, actually. 100%. You know, when I, I told you we were shopping for that dishwasher, one of the things we absolutely did is we looked at how many five-star reviews it had. And really, when you think about it, like, we don't know these people, right? Like, sure, it had 5,000 five-star reviews, but we don't know any of those 5,000 people. And yet, there is a, an element of social proof that's very powerful. There is a comfort in knowing that it's not just one or two people that liked it. There were thousands of people that liked it and only a handful of people that didn't. That gives you an element of trust. Now, how do you get that great review though, right? That goes back to, are you delivering on your promise? Are you saying that this is going to be a really great dishwasher? And then you actually made a really great dishwasher. And then when there was something that was wrong with it, you fixed it really well right? Because a lot of people think that the experience ends once the sale is made. And that's not always true, right? If your product breaks down, what's your call center experience like? What's your service like? What's your, you know, we had, um, I keep talking about this whole podcast is going to be my, about my dishwasher. But uh, before we realized we needed to buy a new dishwasher, we had someone come in and take a look at it, see if the repair was, was necessary. And there was a $100 uh, repair fee that would be applied that if we actually did the repair, that fee would be applied to the, the service. So it turns out motor shot. It didn't make sense for us to repair it better just to buy a new one. Cool. So we were out the hundred dollars. And so when they called back to follow up, they called back to follow up. What did you decide to do? First thing, first check mark. Uh, we said, actually, we just decided to buy a new one. And here's what they said to us. Well, you know what? If you need help installing it, we will apply that hundred dollars towards the install. They didn't have to do that. They could have just said, we offer that service, but they were going to apply the money we already paid to have this person come out and, and, and examine our, our dishwasher and tell us that it was broken. They were going to apply those fundings to the install. All of a sudden, my trust in that company goes way up. Even though they didn't actually repair anything, they just came out and said, this doesn't work. This is what I would do. They gave us a good recommendation. We followed it. Um, all of a sudden, the next time I need to do a repair, I know who I'm going to call. And that's all part of the brand too. It's not just the sale. It's what do you do after the sale to get people to talk about you? Yeah. And going back to what you said earlier, marketing is not only about ad advertising. And that's more and more what we came up with during that discussion, which is like, it's about the before, the during, the after. Uh, and that's all of what marketing can do to help a brand being built. Um, just going back a bit on your experience as a teacher, um, if you are an aspiring marketer and say I'm almost I'm an aspiring marketer because I'm building a podcast, building my own personal brand with that, with that podcast. And, you know, even though I do have a career in finance on the side, I mean, building a brand is still considered marketing, I believe. What are the type of advice you would give me to try and build that brand and to make it the more efficient possible? The biggest advice I give to people is that, you know, you have to go, you have to stand out. There's a, there's, there's a thousands of students that graduate from the school every year. So what's going to make you different? And, and the students that are, are, are rarely successful are the ones that come to me after they're graduate in April and say, professor, I'm looking for a job. What should I do now? And I don't, 
actually say this to them, but what I'm thinking is, well, you should have started two years ago, right? Building your brand, doing stuff. Because, you know, when you're in a situation, if you're in a situation to be able to hire somebody, everybody's gone to school. Yes, grades is one thing you might look at, but I want to look for leaders and I want to look for people who take initiative and I want to look for people who are doing things outside of school. And sometimes that thing outside of school is working. I mean, sometimes you got to pay for school, but that's okay because being able to balance work and school is something, right? That's managing multiple priorities. Or if you say you're passionate about writing, okay, go start a blog, go, go do something. Again, it's never been easier to start this. You've started a podcast. Look at all the things that you needed to do and learn in order to create a podcast. But the tools are there. Cameras are cheap. Microphones are cheap. Laptops are relatively cheap. The Riverside program is relatively inexpensive, right? So you can go and do it. The difference between those that do and those that don't is the initiative, is the willingness to start. And that quality is something that every company looks for, initiative. There are how many finance people are at your organization? Thousands, right? But you're the finance guy who's actually taken the initiative to learn how to build a community, to understand what people want, to understand content. That puts you head and shoulders above someone who isn't doing that. I think that being able to demonstrate that you actually can execute on your plans, that you're not just all talk, is a big thing. And you know what? Doing something is scary. The first time I posted something publicly on LinkedIn, I went through the same fears as everybody has. You know, what if people don't like it? What if they disagree with me? What if they start slamming me in the comments? It's going to happen. But writing, like, a, like many things, is a muscle. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And writing helps you articulate your thoughts, helps you structure your thoughts, put together uh, coherent arguments. And so the more you write, the more you do that, the better your writing becomes. So it really is a flywheel that you start turning. It doesn't matter what you do. It's that you're doing something to bring your passions to life and demonstrating that you have the drive and the initiative and the creativity and the willingness to learn and the willingness to fail. These are all things that, that eventually will help you stand out. Yeah, that's probably the best advice to anyone listening to that podcast, which is if you ever want to try something, just do it. And don't be afraid of it. As you said, like my first LinkedIn post about the podcast, I was scared as hell. Like, honestly, it took me a week before I posted it because I was like, this is going to be out publicly. And it's not even about the people I don't know. It's about the people I know on my network on LinkedIn, like my managers and the directors at my company and people that I've worked with in the past. And it's scary, of course, like, like anyone else. I was so scared. But then equally, the reward after that, like people started talking to me about the podcast at my company and I was like have you listened to it it's, they said yes and you're like oh my god like this is taking off people are listening to it and that's great and they liked it and they liked the initiative and some people just didn't listen to it because they said I'm not into podcasts but they said it's good that you're starting your own thing because if you like it why not um, so that's probably the best advice to anyone listening to this call uh, to this uh, podcast if you do have something you want to do just try and do it and you'll see it's easy. As you said, the tools are available today if you want to build something online, at least. A hundred percent. And you know what? I had an amazing manager at Starbucks. Her name was Annie Kirok. She's a, she's a dear friend today, but she, she, she hired me at Starbucks. And I reported to her for, for two years. And she gave me some amazing advice. Because at that time at Starbucks, I was young. Uh, I was single. 
I was ambitious. And so I would spend all of my time at work. I would work 12 hour days and, and just be in the office super early and be there really late and then go out with colleagues. And I was just always there working all the time. And one day she, she saw that I was stressed, right? Because when all you have is work, when work is great, your life is amazing. And when work is terrible, your life is terrible, right? So if you only, if you don't have any outside interests, all you have is work, work dictates how you feel. And so one day my, my manager saw that I was down and she said, uh, she's like, David, do you think that's how you get ahead here that you just work all the time? And I said, yeah, she's like, no, she's like, go out, do things outside of work, you know, have a hobby. She used to joke with me all the time. She's like, every time I'd be like, oh, I got to work. I got this problem. She'd like, get a girlfriend. Like that's how she would joke to me. It's not a politically correct joke anymore, but back then it was funny and we had a good relationship. So she would, she would always tease me about not having a girlfriend, not having a, a life outside of work. And so I took her advice. And so instead of being frustrated at work that I wasn't learning enough, I went to go do my MBA outside of work. And instead of being frustrated at work that some of the stuff I had to do, some of the tasks I had to do weren't creative, I started the Toronto chapter of a global charity. And I got to get put together these really creative events to raise money for a good cause. And instead of arguing at work and, and uh, with, with colleagues and, and to practice my debating and my negotiating, I joined my condo board. And I got to be able to kind of practice in a relatively safe environment. And yes, I did get a girlfriend who I've now been married to for 14 years. So, but what ended up happening is that that actually, that diversification of my life made me better. It made me calmer. <laughs> I was able to take out some of my frustrations with work and able to kind of get what I was missing from work externally and learn externally that I was able to apply those learnings back to work. So if these days, especially, it's so easy to have a side gig. It's so easy to have a side hustle and work is so unpredictable, right? Open up the newspaper and you see about the layoffs that are happening every company everywhere. So it used to be that you joined a company and you stayed there for 50 years and got the gold watch at the end of it. And that doesn't happen anymore. So how are you building your own personal brand so that you're not identifying with the company? And I'll tell you, it's powerful. When I worked at Starbucks, I was proud of people telling it, uh, proud to tell people that I worked at Starbucks. And when I worked at Coke, when I worked at Google, it becomes such a, a part of your identity and that's okay, but you can't make it your entire identity. You have to build your own brand too. You need to make sure that you're not sacrificing your own personal brand to build the company because one day the company might decide it needs to restructure and doesn't need you anymore. And then you need to have your own personal brand to be able to fall back on. Yeah. And I like it because you talked about transferable skills. And I believe that's one of the things that's super true, at least for me, which is I'm doing the podcast because I love it, because I love to explore different topics. And I'm really curious. And I think that fills my curiosity, but equally, one of the things that led me to start this podcast is to try and learn more about how to tell a story, have a real discussion with someone about something I don't know about. And those are skills that will come and help me during my finance roles. Because like finance people, some of them, like they know really well their numbers, they're super technical. But then when it comes, for example, to a presentation and sharing your ideas, it's a bit harder, right? And I think one of the things I'm learning through the podcast is how to articulate an opinion, how to talk with someone about a topic, or to talk with someone about a topic they don't know or you don't know about. And I think that's really something that's really powerful in terms of transferring the skills I learned on the podcast all the way through my finance job at Microsoft. So 
but yeah, to round up the podcast, because we already have time, it's uh, flying fast. But um, one of the last questions I have for you, David, and I promised you that before, I wanted to ask you about the book that you recently have written. And the only question I have is, what drives you to kind of write this book? Is it your passion for writing? I think there were a few things that came together. So uh, I, I wrote a book. It actually started out as a presentation I gave to a group of HR professionals. The event had a very strict format. You were allowed 20 slides and every slide, the slide advanced every 15 seconds automatically. So I've always been comfortable on a stage just kind of talking, right, without a script. And I've always been comfortable writing my thoughts down and reading them. But I'm not great at preparing a script and then delivering the script to, a, to an audience. In the spirit of learning and making myself uncomfortable, I wanted to challenge myself to do that. And so I signed up to speak at this event. And I decided to make it even more difficult for myself by doing the entire event as uh, in rhyming couplets. So the, my entire uh, 20 slides consisted of, you know, three rhyming couplets per slide for 20 slides. And I tried to memorize that. And so I got about three slides in and people were like, holy smokes, this guy's rhyming his whole presentation. And then I got three slides in and I said, oh, I can't remember what I'm supposed to say next. And a funny thing happened. The crowd started cheering. They started clapping and cheering. And I didn't expect that. Like I messed up my presentation. And by that part, they were on board with the idea. So that was great. I finished up the presentation. Somebody came up to me afterward and said, you know, I really, really like that. I said, thank you so much. I'm really upset with myself for messing it up. I spent all this time writing this couple. I said, maybe I should publish a book. And he said, he looked at me and he smiled. And he said, do you have an illustrator? And that's how I met my illustrator, Rafael Davila. And we spent the last year kind of bringing this book to life. So taking uh, the, the poem that I wrote and uh, putting these amazing illustrations together. But Getting back to your question about why I actually wrote the book, that's how it came about. But why I wrote it is is really two things. I spent years uh, um, searching for roles. I mean, there are a lot of people um, spend time in transition looking for roles. And I've just found that the recruitment process tends to be absolutely terrible for most companies, right? There, people don't get back to you. The application process is a nightmare. You spend weeks upon weeks waiting to hear an answer. If you even hear an answer, sometimes ghosting happens. Just terrible. And what I got to thinking, not just as a job candidate, but also as a marketer, what a terrible experience this is. You are hurting your employer brand when you treat candidates poorly. And that was the idea that led to the presentation. The presentation led to the book. So I am approaching, the book is called Tom Talent and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Recruitment Process. And it is an illustrated storybook that illustrates the story of Tom Talent, who decides that uh, he wants to, to start looking for other opportunities and the terrible process he goes through until finally Tom says, that's enough. And that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book actually has some research that we were able to conduct for a company called Cattle. It's an insights company that works with a whole bunch of Fortune 500 brands. And Cattle did some research for us that actually proved out what impact it actually has on your brand when your recruitment process is terrible. So the second half of the book is a bit of a lengthy blog post with the research and some recommendations on how companies can do things better, right? It's really structured at Here's why it's important. Here's the data that proves it's important. And here's what you need to do going forward if you want to protect your brand. Because when an employer has a terrible recruitment process, 
the research actually shows that not only will people be less likely and less willing to apply to future roles at that company, but they're also less willing to support the company's products and services, and they'll tell their network to also not support the product and services. So you are not just hurting job candidates, you are hurting potential future employees, and you're hurting your future customers when you just don't treat people well. That's really interesting. And I think the book falls great to round up this podcast because the reason why I started this podcast called Explore is to go behind the scene with different leaders from different backgrounds, different industries, different cultures, and try and understand what a career could look like and the different fields in which you could work, right? So, so far we've talked about FinTech, we talked about data visualization, we also talked about sustainability, and today it's about marketing. And I think these two together, the podcast and the book, might help you find your path to the success or at least to your happiness within your job and your role and to find the right field for you. So... I think hopefully today's episode was insightful. At least for me, it was a full marketing course. I loved it. Um, thank you so much, David. And any last word for the, the audience? Uh, yeah, I mean, if I could do a plug, the, the book goes live November 24th. It's available for pre-order on Amazon now. Uh, if you search for my name on Amazon, the book will show up. Or if you search for Tom Talent, uh, we will show up. Uh, right next to Tom Brady's book, I believe. Um, November 24th is when the print version is going to be available, but the Kindle version can be pre-ordered now and it goes live November uh, 24th. Super. I will put the link in the show notes as well so that people, if they want to hear about the book or read the book, they can have it as well. David, thank you so much and um, happy to have had this conversation with you today. It's my, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. This concludes already the episode with David about marketing. I think I had a blast during the discussion. He's so passionate about the topic that it makes us understand it really much more than you do in your marketing classes. If you like this episode and if you like the show, don't forget to follow on Spotify, follow on Instagram, and also share it with your friends. Maybe someone want to learn about marketing and this episode is going to be for them. Don't forget to tell me who you want to see next and I'll try to do my best to bring them in the show. And until next time, I hope you continue exploring different opportunities and that you continue being curious about different topics. This was your goal from Explore.